Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 527, The Non-Perspective, Part 1. In this week's episode, for the first time this season, we brought someone on who has an opposing viewpoint to my own to explain why the so-called, quote, nons believe that Jason, Damien, and Jesse are guilty of the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Now, what you may have noticed during the episode, and I saw several people comment about this on social media, is the fact that I didn't really rebut too much of what she said, and that was by design. The whole purpose and intent of bringing Lisa on the show was to let you hear that perspective. Now, we do have some conversations back and forth. In the second half, it gets closer to a little more, I I wouldn't say debatey, but I do, in the second half, challenge her a little more than I did in the first half. But we had a lot of listeners that had questions about some things that she said and some things that I said, and Mike, I think you also have a few things that just are unrelated to this episode, but questions the listener had as well. Yeah, let's go ahead and get started, Bob. All right, so without any further ado, we're going to get started on your follow-up for 527. First, let's talk about why we brought Lisa onto the show in the first place. There were some comments on our social media where some people think you're letting the opposing view control the flow of the show. Bob, can you talk for just a minute about why you're going through this process? Yeah, this is nothing new. We did this in season one also. And the difference between uh, the season one case and this case is they're both very widely known popular cases. And this one in particular has people that are firmly planted in their views for for decades in some case. You know, Lisa in particular said that she's been studying the case since 1996. So my process of going through any investigation is, as we've done in this one, you know, we go through and we look at victimology, we look at the crime scene, and we start looking at what leads we would follow from a brand new ground zero investigation. But then we get to the point where we're ready to look into suspects, and if the investigating agency may have gotten it wrong, then they would likely go a different direction than I would. And that's what happened in this case. So once we got done with victimology and we profiled the scene, I think we should be looking at people with known personal authoritative roles uh, in the kids' lives. West Memphis PD went a different route. So part of the reason I brought Lisa on is to let you hear that other perspective. And keep in mind that while those of you that are listening along as we go, 
Some of you are loving every minute of this. Some of you are ready to move on in the case and get into the, the new suspect investigation. But this podcast is also one of the things that we wanted to accomplish here is to put out the most in-depth analysis of this case in the media that's ever been out there. And that was our goal. Now, my my opinions and perspectives and my determinations that I come up with during the season may not be agreeable with everyone, but I want us to have historically forever, for anyone that ever wants to research the West Memphis 3 case, to be able to say, well, here is not just a book or a 90-minute or two-hour movie. Here's a hundred hours that breaks down every single piece of it. And so I want to make sure that we do that, that we get every single piece of the case out there. And part of that is the viewpoint of those that believe that the three are guilty. And, you know, I've touched on a lot of pieces of evidence along the way and gave my opinion about them, you know, namely just uh, like the, the Narlene Hollingsworth claim of the sighting of, of Jason and Dominie. I discussed that. I investigated it, came to a determination and a conclusion and moved on from it. But there are other people that don't agree with me on that. So I wanted you to hear firsthand from someone who's been well-researched for a long time in the case why they think they're guilty. So you have that to consider when you're making your own decision about whether you think the West Memphis Three are innocent or guilty. So that's why we're doing it. We're not letting anybody control the flow of the show. This was the plan from the very beginning before we ever started. You know, as I've said many times, this process has taken longer than most, and that's because we have three defendants here to break down, where normally we only have one. So you could cut down two-thirds of what we've covered if there was only one defendant in this case. But I, I really enjoyed Lisa's interview, and I was glad to hear that other side of the story, so to speak. So this, we have that perspective out there, and it is now out there forever for anyone to ever come through and and listen to this show and our perspectives on the case and try to be as open and inclusive and fair and balanced as possible. All right, Nicole Moore makes a very simple point on the fan page. She says the nons can't prove they did it, and the supporters can't prove they didn't. What's your response to that? It's a good point, and, and that's why I think that 25 years later, we're still discussing this case. But there's an issue with that in the fact that it's impossible to prove a negative. And that's why the burden of proof is on is supposed to be on the prosecution in any criminal investigation. In this case, you know, they were able to obtain their guilty verdict. You know, so some will hang their hats on that, that, well, they, they a jury said they were guilty, so they're guilty. But in order to try to prove that something didn't happen, that's exactly why the burden of proof is not on the defense in a criminal case. because. Look at, you know, Damien's case. We've got all these witnesses that say that he's at the Sanders house during the time of the murders. Now, we can we can draw all those into question. And maybe they're wrong and maybe they have the wrong day. Sure, we can we can do all that and maybe they do. I don't know, but he's trying to prove that he didn't commit the murders and it's impossible. Even if you had the I mean, right there, you've got witnesses saying absolutely he was at my house during that time. People still don't believe it. They still pick it apart. It's it's not usually possible to prove a negative. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes because people are trying to prove a negative when really the most likely method to prove the innocence of anyone is to prove who actually did do it, prove a positive. Who was the one that actually did this? That's a lot easier to do. There's too many unknowns in trying to prove a negative. You know, Deidre Enright in the uh, Serial podcast, she told Sarah, technically and legally speaking, you don't have to prove who else did it, but realistically, you need to prove who else did it. Okay, this next one's from Robin. Miss O'Brien seems to give a lot of credibility to the Hollingsworth testimony. 
It seems odd to me that if it's so credible, why does she discount the sighting of Damien and Domini as being Damien and Jason? Further, the details given about Domini's clothing in the Hollingsworth testimony, the pink pants with the flowers on them that she saw her wearing, would be strange for Jason to be wearing. First of all, I have to correct her that it wasn't pink pants with flowers. They were they were black pants with white flowers on them, they said. Gotcha. And I think Lisa's argument is that the holes in the knees of Jason's pants could have been mistaken for flowers. It's just, to me, again, it's like a lot of arguments you hear here where it's, it's like we want to believe them, but not all of them. Only believe the parts that fit our narrative. You know, so in this case, anyone who believes the three are guilty wants to believe Narlene Hollingsworth's sighting because it puts Damien at least near the crime scene. Now, it puts him near the crime scene three hours after the boys had disappeared. And, you know, people by that point had been actually in the, you know, Ryan Clark and his buddies had crossed the bridge, the pipe bridge and been in the woods already at that point. But they want to put him there. So they want to they want to say the sighting is credible. But the sighting is, you know, it, it includes Domini and not Jason. And that's a problem. So then we try to explain that part away. And I have a problem with a lot, there's a lot of that. And I'm not I'm not speaking uh, ill of Lisa, just a lot of people in a lot of arguments about this case do that where I, I believe this, but not this part or they want to same thing. I mean, Jesse's Jesse, Miss Kelly's confession is, is riddled with that. You know, you want to believe that he confessed, but you want to explain away why he got everything wrong. But the reality of the fact is with Narling Hollingsworth, you have, in my opinion, you have two options here. Either she's telling the truth. Uh, and by telling the truth, I mean, either she's, you know, the, the opposite would be either she's lying or she's mistaken the day or something, but either she's telling the truth, in which case she identified Domini. Period. Not Jason. Her and Tabitha both have said 100%. There is zero chance that they got it wrong. It was Domini. And remember, she didn't recognize Damien to see Domini with him. She recognized Domini, her niece, and then recognized Damien with her. So if it's, if if she actually saw them, then it was Damien and Domini. But as Lisa said, Domini was at the trailer park that night. But again, you know, why do we believe Domini's mom when she says she wasn't there, but we don't believe Damien's mom, when he says that he wasn't there, you know, it's, it's being very selective about what we're, we're going to agree with or what we're going to uh, believe, I guess, so to speak. But those are the options. Either the, the sighting is legit and it was Damien and Dominie or it was incorrect and they weren't there at all that night. I don't think that it's OK or fair to try to split that down the middle and take part, especially when you know, you're, you're trying to make evidence out of something that's not there. And Fogelman did the same thing in his closing arguments, trying to suggest that she mistook Domini for Jason, when that's not the evidence. That's not what she said. If we're looking at her statement, we have to go by what her statement says. We can't just, just decide that something else happened when she said that it absolutely did not. All right, and a lot of people were questioning this. Some people were looking for cases on this too. In the interview, Lisa said that there's never been another instance of parents or step-parents killing their kid and also unrelated kids. Does that hold any weight with you, Bob? No, it doesn't. And and to be honest with you, she may be right. She may be wrong. Some people suggested a couple of cases. One, I actually saw, I saw that they had posted it and then later went back and read it. And it was not the case at all. I mean, there were unrelated family members killed, but no one's been convicted. It's unsolved. So we don't even know if it was a parent that did it. So yeah, maybe she's right. I don't know. And I haven't found a good way to research that. You know, how do you even trying to Google case where you know parent kills child and other child is just not something that's easily researchable so i don't know if she's assuming that or if somehow she's been able to study 
you know, 50 years of criminal case where I, I, I doubt that. I, I, I'm guessing it maybe probably has happened, but even if it hasn't, I, the same argument can be made for three teenage boys getting drunk and high. And, and, if, and if, we're, if we're believing Jesse's confession, they're drunk and high. They targeted these kids. They took photos of them beforehand and, and carried a briefcase with cocaine and guns in it to go kill them in, in a very strange way. And like, as far as I know, that's never happened either. And even if either one of those hasn't happened, there's, there's a first time for everything. You know, there's a first time that anything happens. And even if there's no one else has ever done it, let's take the, the children out of it and look at how many crimes where someone is killed because they witness a crime. That, I do know, happens all the time. Someone commits a murder, an un, usually an unplanned murder. Someone's witness to it, and they get killed too because they, they saw what happened. So the fact that it's children, I guess, you know, it changes some things. But, you know, if you're dealing with, in my opinion, what I've said is that I believe that our killer is is an absolute psychopath in order to be able to do this, then it doesn't matter if it's their kid or their stepkid or, you know, if it's, you know, because her reasoning for that was she was talking about why the parents were never investigated, which was because, you know, this has never happened before. So why would you investigate the parents? I disagree with that, too. And I don't know if you're going to get into that, but. They should have you always start with the people closest and work out, especially when you have no clear forensic leads or eyewitnesses. So that's not an excuse, in my opinion. But they didn't investigate the parents, according to her, because this has never happened before. Well, if you're dealing with a psychopath, they have no empathy for other humans at all. It doesn't matter if it's their child, if it's the neighbor. It doesn't matter if it's a random stranger. It doesn't matter. So to them, they're just killing three people. It doesn't. They don't have any. They're not capable. A psychopath is not capable of real love from my understanding of the diagnosis. So it doesn't matter that it was their kid or not their kid. It wouldn't matter at all. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Bob, and I know you tried not to interrupt Lisa and let her get her points out, but a lot of listeners want to hear your thoughts about Lisa's opinion that since the officers at the trailer park said Jesse wasn't there, that all the other witnesses must be wrong or lying. Lisa and I do have a very fundamental difference there in the fact that I mean, the way she worded that, and I don't and I don't want to put words in Lisa's mouth. I think she pretty much said this, but her reasoning for saying that Jesse was lying about being there on the the night of the murders was because the officer said he wasn't there. And you know, I've worked with law enforcement for decades, and I know that they're just real human beings, and they are capable of very good things. They're capable of wrongdoing. They're capable of lying just like anyone else. And so we look at who's lying. Uh, it, it, say these are intentional lies. You know, because keep in mind that these officers, it was it was six and eight months later by the time they were asked if they saw Jesse on this one complaint they went to amongst 
hundreds of other complaints that happened since then. They're out at Highland Trailer Park all the time. Months later, they're asked, and they say that no, he wasn't there. But let's say, so, I mean, it could be that he was there, and they just don't remember. Or it could be that they're specifically Dalahite could be lying about whether or not Jesse was there or not. Uh, and, it, and then it could be that all the witnesses from the trailer park are lying for Jesse. But then, then I look at, like, well, what's the motive to lie here? Who's benefiting from this lie? All of the witnesses from the trailer park that if you go through all the, you know, we, we played some of it, but go through all of the testimony. It's all on Callahan's. A lot of it's audio. You can actually listen to it. And it all flows together. Everyone's stories fit perfectly together as far as what happened that night and where Jesse was at, which is pretty impressive if they're all lying. But so if they all came up with this conspiracy to lie about this, and she said that she doesn't fault them for lying because they didn't believe Jesse was capable of the murders, so they're trying to help him. But still, so what, what is their benefit? What benefit did they get from risking perjury and risking a crime by, by hindering a police investigation? There's severe consequences with that. And what's their benefit? If they're lying, that means that Jesse likely was telling the truth when he confessed, and he killed these three little boys. So they're just getting a child murderer off for free. Are they willing to risk that? All of these people willing to risk that to protect Jesse Kelly? Or what's the benefit if the Crittenden County officer lies? Dollahite. Well, for them, if he says that Jesse's there, they're, all three convictions are gone. You know, and I don't mean this is this is pre-trial, but you think about it. If Dalhite says yes, I remember talking to Jesse at the trailer park that night, and they can see one hundred percent sure, according to the officer, that Jesse was at the Highland Trailer Park at six fifty-nine p.m. Their case is gone, not just against Jesse, but against Jesse and Jason and Damien. They're all gone. That was the basis for their warrant. Was the confession? He so what does he have to have to gain or lose? He says he's there. They lose all three suspects. They lose their case closure. Everything's gone. If he says he's not there, then they have a solid case and they can get their conviction. So there's definitely a benefit there. Now, you have to decide for yourself if you think that any officer is willing to lie. I mean, this is the same department. I'll let you make your own decision. But you guys have heard the tactics of the interviews with little Aaron Hutchison and the tactics of the interviews with Jesse Miss Kelly and the, the polygraph test results that were later looked at and determined to be false by expert Warren Holmes. I mean, to, to assume that the West Memphis Police Department and the Marion Police Department and the Crittenden County Sheriff's Department are all infallible and not capable of A, getting it wrong, or B, lying, I think personally is short-sighted. All right, and you and Lisa discussed past behavior as predictors of future behavior. She seemed to put much more weight on Damien's past while ignoring the past behaviors of other people involved in this case. Can you get into specifically what behaviors you were talking about? Well, we were just, and, and mind you, I'm not saying any of these people are suspects, but just when we, we were talking about, you know, looking at family members and she brought up, people want to talk about the uh, John Mark Byers or Terry Hobbs being the adoptive father and stepfather of Stevie Branch and Chris Byers. And her point was people want to look at their past behavior, but she said it didn't, the things they've done aren't as bad as the things that Damien has said during his, in, in some of his actions that are all contained in Exhibit 500. And my point was, well, they have actual violent acts on their records. And I think later she had gone on the Facebook fan page and made some comments that, you know, there was no documentation for any of that. And I, I'm, I'm a little baffled by that because there, there absolutely is. Terry Hobbs, for example, uh, there's police reports and the disposition where he pled guilty 
to breaking into his neighbor's house and she was in the shower and she got, got out of the shower nude and he was in her bathroom and she said grabbed her, I believe, by the breasts uh, and she was screaming to him to get out of there and he was telling her to be quiet and he left. He pled guilty. That happened. There's there's documentation that happened. You know, he also, it's a it's a fact, there's police reports that he, he shot his brother-in-law. Uh, didn't kill him, he shot him. Now, in that particular case, to be fair, well, there's, there it is right there too. I was going to say it was self-defense, but it began with, and Terry has admitted this, he was in a deposition, admitted this happened, that he beat the hell out of Pam, uh, his wife, Pam Hobbs, or now Pam Hicks, that he had beat her up and hit her across the jaw. I think he maybe even broke her jaw. You know, and he said that, you know, they, they tended to get violent with each other, but he doesn't deny that that happened. And then Pam called her family over, her brother comes over, and he ends up shooting her brother when he was attacking him. So the, the shooting was self-defense, but those are just example two confirmed documented violent acts with with Terry as just one of the the parents. Now that, that doesn't make him a murderer any more than Exhibit 500 makes Damien a murderer. You know, John Mark Byers uh has had a lot of run-ins with the law and remember he was a criminal informant on both sides of the bridge meaning with West Memphis, I think Marion and Memphis. If you read Mara Leverett's book The Devil's Not, uh she gets into a lot of this. she's very well researched and uh has discusses documentation in there where he's had terroristic threat and charges. And um, I think there was an incident where he held a, a gun on two boys for them to fight or fight. There was, there, there were some, there were some violent acts. He had a lot of things that he was charged with and then just were mysteriously dropped, which she makes the implication that that was due to uh, the fact that he was a criminal informant, but there's a lot of violent history with John Mark Byers too. And again, that doesn't make him a murderer any more than it makes Terry a murderer or it makes, Damien Eccles a murderer because of his past, but I I don't agree that they don't have violent past or there's no documentation for it. There absolutely is for both of them, and that's just that's just true. Now, if you want to just talk about random people like Damien and Jason and Jesse were, there are other suspects that were violent sex offenders that were that were suspects. Other other people with there's just a, a litany of other past behaviors that uh, indeed are predictive. Sometimes, I mean, you can't guarantee, but it's definitely something to be concerned about, especially when we're, we're profiling a case and trying to determine who was capable of doing this. The, the past behavior is certainly a good predictor of, of future behavior. And there was a lot of that going around, I think more than, than Lisa gave credit for. Okay. And Jessica says, the bindings are what throw me off. I've not listened entirely to Jesse's confession, but I would think there would have been detail about the way the boys were tied. People keep aligning the bindings with ritual, but in Jesse's confession, was there anything about satanic ritual or any ritual with the ties? No, and that's one of the odd things about the confession is there's there's a lot of talk, especially in the pre-interview. Remember, he was originally brought in because he was a known associate of Damien Eccles. He had introduced Vicki Hutchison to Damien at Vicky's request to try to entrap Damien into confessing or giving her some information about the crimes, which didn't pan out. A lot of look at the pre-interview notes or the the pre-polygraph notes and what's in the polygraph. They're they're all talking about the the satanic rituals. What went on in these satanic rituals? And Jesse's you know going along with them, telling him that he's in a cult and telling him that they kill and eat dogs and all these things. But then when they describe the actual murders, he, there's nothing ritualistic about any of it. He's talking about them just beating them up, hitting them with fists, hitting them with sticks, cutting their face, raping them. Number obviously he never says that they drown them, you know, they have to pull out of them even that they were in the water, but there's nothing ritualistic about the crime as he confesses to it. But he 
talks about all of the ritualistic and cult stuff prior to and during, but never involving the crime itself. While we're on the topic of satanic ritual, Bob, have you noticed Jesse's contradictory attitude towards his religion? At one point, he's talking about his involvement in a satanic cult, but then later says that he will tell the truth if he's holding his hand on a Bible. This just struck me as a strange contradiction. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I hadn't really noticed that. Uh, you pointed it out to me before, and a couple of people I noticed on the fan page pointed it out. But, but yeah, nothing is congruent with Jesse whatsoever. You can't reconcile. I mean, how do you reconcile that? That he's in the satanic cult, and they have all these meetings, and they have orgies, and they, they kill and eat dogs, and do these sacrifices, but then his his reasoning for finally, quote, telling the truth is because, you know, when he says, because he's got his hand in a Bible. Nobody ever asked me to put my hand in a Bible before. If they had, I would have told him the truth. Well, if he's a Satanist in these cults, why does he care about the Bible? It's a great point, and I don't have an answer for it, except for, obviously, you know, my opinion that the entire confession is just made up. And also, keep in mind that all of Jesse's friends from the trailer park were asked about Jesse and his involvement in the cult. And all of them said that, I believe all of them, I shouldn't say all because I, I shouldn't speak in absolutes because I, I may have missed one or two. But as far as I know, none of them said that Jesse was in any cult. They said no. And I believe none of them said they, was even, they even knew that of one that existed. They never heard of one existing at all. So Jesse is the only one saying that he was in this cult. I think everyone else says that he was not and there wasn't a cult to begin with. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This next one comes from Deborah. I'm glad to hear the other side of the argument, but how can Jesse be, quote, not the sharpest crane in the box, so the cops had to interview him in a certain way, but at another time not be as dim as the supporters of the West Memphis 3 say he is. As Lisa says, he's very street savvy. In my opinion, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, I find that to be a little contradictory too. And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier regarding the Hollingsworth sighting, is we want to take some of the evidence, but not all of it. So, you know, I think she had said that you, know, you, you can't expect him to give a flowing narrative of a confession because he's got the mentality of of a six-year-old, which he doesn't, to be clear, doesn't have the mentality of a six-year-old. He has the reasoning ability, and I believe the way Dr. Wilkins put it is that his perception of reality is that of like a six- or seven-year-old, with his IQ being 72, which really would be higher functioning in general than a six- or seven-year-old. But just his perception of reality is that. But she says that we can't expect him to give a flowing narrative of a confession but I mean, I, I will say, I think I mentioned it in the discussion, but I didn't want to interrupt her too much. But I completely disagree with that. You know, my seven-year-old gets in trouble and he can explain to you, whether he's telling the truth or lying, he can explain to you what happened. 
he can say no, no, you know, if, if say you know, for Parker, if he comes home and he got a, you know, a, a yellow day at school or he got a warning, and I ask him what happened, and he, of course, of course, it's never his fault, right? You know, but it was, yeah. you know, well, well, what happened was Billy took my pencil and then he did this and he ran over there and then I told him to stop and he took it and then I grabbed my pencil away and then I got in trouble for being out of my seat. Like it's seven years old. He can do that. Any that's, I, I don't think that's accurate to say that you can't expect them to give a narrative and all. And also let me back up. It's not like Jesse tried to give a narrative and was incapable of doing so. Ridge never let him remember at the very beginning of the interview. He says, so tell me what happened. Start that day. And he says that I went, and then Jason or Damien hit him and bruised him up real bad. And then I left. And then and Jesse starts to say, and then, and Ridge interrupts him and starts with yes or no questions right away. He never gave him the chance. And you can still pull, even if someone's not giving you a flowing narrative, you can absolutely still pull that information out by saying, okay, well, what happened next? So after that, did anything else happen? It's not necessary to say, Okay, so after that, you're standing on the tall bank, and there's a little creek underneath it, and there's some water in it. There's not always water, but there was a little water, and it was muddy, and it was flowing through there, and there's a tall bank, and, and which side of the bank you on? You know, you can say, well, it, describe to me where you were standing. And it's not like Ridge tried that, and then Jesse was incapable, and then drew more out of him. He just gums right out and explains it to him. He never, and, and to me, that's one of the indicators why I'm very hard, and I continue to be hard on Ridge and Gitchell, because to me, they are trained interrogators. They are trained interviewers, far more trained likely than I ever have been, and certainly way more experienced than I ever have been. And they knew damn well what they should have been doing. And to me, when when they're giving him details without ever giving him the chance to provide them for himself, not that he didn't, but they never gave him the chance. They didn't say, describe the area you were standing in. They described the area he was standing in. And to me, that is a direct indication that they knew that he didn't know the answer. Because, because again, they're on tape now. So if they said, describe to me where you're standing, you know, like Stidham did in the Bible confession, where does he say he was standing? Out in the open, 15 feet away from the pipe in the, in the, in the big bayou with water over his head. That's what happened when he was, when he was offered to explain it for himself. But Ridge never gives him that chance. And to me, that's an indication that he knew he didn't have the right answer to it. But then, but then to make that argument that, well, you had to do it that way because of his mentality, you can't expect a flowing narrative out of someone like that. Number one, I disagree with that. But number two, but then follow that up with, well, then why does he include a detailed, he does give a detailed, vivid recollection of the interaction with police. And then now it's flipped to, well, he's a lot more street smart and savvy than you give him credit for, as as though he he put that information in there on purpose in order to take away the credibility of his confession. When again, he's not even in front of police and he's in front of his own lawyer. He decided to confess. His lawyer told him not to. He did it anyway. But then still, then, then is street smart and savvy enough to give that detailed narrative about the the interaction with police. But then again, shits the bed when it comes to explaining what happened with the actual crime. I just, I I feel like you can't have it both ways. All right. Wendell says, with all this talk about the accused lying about their alibis, can you identify any actual countermeasures their lies create if we assume that they are indeed lying? As far as countermeasure goes, no, there really aren't. I mean, they're just, 
saying they're in, in one place, you know, if, if we're assuming they're lying and not just not knowing where they were at, as far as like Damien saying he was he was at the Sanders between three and five. And that was another point I think Lisa had made that, you know, Damien says it was two hour window and then the Sanders say it was 20 minutes. Well, Damien didn't necessarily say we were there from three to five p.m. He said we were there and then between three and five p.m. And, and that was not a recorded interview. Those were the notes. That very well could have been him saying it was sometime between three and five, I think. Not I was there for two hours from three to five. But that's I digress there. But no. So like forensic countermeasures might be uh, ways. You know, those are typically ways to point the investigation in a different direction. And no, we don't see any of that. They're never saying, no, but I heard so and so did it or I heard that other than Jesse. When they first asked him uh, if he knew anything about the crime, he said that he'd heard a rumor that Damien and Robert Birch did it. Which, again, you know, that fact gets breezed over quite a bit, too. But, you know, why would he do that? Why would he implicate Damien and not Jason and another guy? I don't know. But, no, there's not really any forensic countermeasures in there. Okay, and listener Sakira put up a post on the fan page that may explain the source of the mysterious urinating in the mouth rumors. Did you see this, Bob? Yeah, so uh, Sakura put up, I I don't know, one of us got that right, I'm sure. Sakura or Sakura. Um, But she put up a link, and it's on the fan page, to a video called In the Name of Satan. It was a 1990 documentary all about Satanism. I'm like, this is right in the heart of Satanic Panic. I, I think we've, we've all agreed that the source of the rumor about urination in the mouth of the victims came from Damien's meeting with Steve Jones on May the 7th. I, I don't know that Steve Jones has ever said it came from Damien. Damien says it came from Jones, but it certainly came out of that meeting. And, and so what she makes a really good point here, remember that that Jerry Driver, Steve Jones' uh, boss, was was obsessed with the occult, obsessed with Satanism. You know, and, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, but that's a fact. A lot of law enforcement agencies were at that time. That's why there were these documentaries and things. And when we watched this this video, there were people describing the Satanic ritual. And one of the things to look for in Satanic ritual was being forced to drink urine, urine in the mouth. So that may be a source or where that came from is in, and there's more. I mean, if you Google it, there's, there's more videos, there's more literature about the satanic panic time. And one of the indicators of satanic ritual was forcing children, you know, because at that time, a lot of the satanic panic were involved around like daycare centers. There was a lot of daycare center things and in, in the, that they were forced to drink urine. So it's unlikely that Jerry driver and probably Steve Jones is working with him and going on these, you know, full moon ride alongs wouldn't be aware of that's one of the indicators to look for because it's all over the place if you look. And so the implication there is that maybe it did come from Jones, as Damien said, and the reason he may have thought that was because of the literature and the videos that were out there at the time. Emmy says, Lisa mentioned that Jesse created false memories about being handcuffed. So why can't he have created false memories about the murders? Again, it goes right back to the same thing of being selective about where you apply what schools of thought to the same witnesses. She says that he very clearly doesn't have a grip on reality or a warp, uh, grip on reality because he had at some point said that his lawyer, Dan Stidham, handcuffed him, which clearly didn't happen. But then at the same time, you know, that's kind of the, the whole argument for the people that think that the confessions are invalid is because he, he, he doesn't have the proper perspective on reality. He doesn't understand the situation. He thinks he's helping himself by confessing, which is consistent with what she just said. But in, but in, but in her case, 
that's evidence that he doesn't have a firm grip on reality and he and he fantasizes and makes up realities but will not apply that same logic to why he confessed and maybe i'm hoping that some of this i mean it's unlikely people don't tend to change their minds often but some people might see and that may be a benefit of doing this whole interview you know because lisa's done a good job of of laying out that case and she continues to do that in the upcoming episode the second part of it for people to realize that, oh, you know what? Maybe that does make sense. If, we, if we're applying that logic here, it should apply throughout. If Jesse Miss Kelly is someone who doesn't have a grip on reality and makes up fantasies and can get and, and, and tell stories about things that never actually happened, well, let's apply that to Jesse Miss Kelly then, if that's your opinion, to everything that he says and look at it through that lens and maybe we end up in a different place. All right, Laura writes, in follow-up 526, you mentioned that the police went into the woods and shined flashlights on the water. I thought when the boys were found there, there was no footprints in the mud. Did the police not go on the bank during the search? If memory serves in the affidavit written by those police officers, it doesn't really get into exactly where they were, other than they say that they were right, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but that they were right there where the bodies were found. They had high-powered mag lights shining them into the water. And they say that if the boys were there, they would have seen them. And that's all they say. So, and remember, this is a, if, if you've never seen photos or video of the crime scene, these are, this is a very tall bank on the Blue Beacon side, a very, very tall bank that slopes down into where the boys were found. So it would probably seem likely that they were up on top. Because keep in mind, there were footprints. I think they found two, they took two casts of two different footprints from the scene. And they, I believe, compared them to all of the officers that had been there. And they compared them to any pair of shoes or boots confiscated from the three defendants. They didn't match any of those. So it's, it, it seems, it would seem to me that those shoe prints likely belong to the killer. Uh, I mean, it was right there at the crime scene. You can see where one kind of slipped down the side of the bank and, and landed on the bottom of the bank. Didn't match anybody else, but they never, confiscated shoes or looked at shoes or boots from any of the people that would fit our profile, which would be anybody with a known personal relationship to the victims. And I'm sure, you know, whoever did it was not stupid enough to just keep the shoes sitting in their closet, at least not for a long period of time. To conclude this week's follow-up, after listening to the first half of Lisa's argument, has your opinion been swayed from the view that the so-called West Memphis Three are innocent? No, not so far. And to be honest, I expected... Uh, maybe Lisa to throw some things at me that I hadn't heard before or read before, but pretty much so far, all of the points she's made, I think I've I've not only already investigated but addressed on the show, uh, with the exception of you know her wanting to get into more of Damien's uh, Exhibit 500, which we kind of briefly covered. But no, so far uh, she hasn't given me anything other. You know, there's a lot of assumption, there's a lot of speculation. At the end of the day, it's all circumstantial. The big thing between me and Lisa is. We're looking at the case from two very different perspectives. I think listener Wendell, I think it was Wendell, uh, made this point on the fan page that she's looking at the case of three guys who were convicted and are guilty and trying to prove that negative, to prove they're innocent. Whereas the way I do these investigations, if we're going to investigate it, we investigate it the right way, we go back to the very beginning, we look at the evidence, and we have an evidence-driven investigation. Evidence drives theory. Where in this case, I think that the way... And not just Lisa, but anybody that is looking from the non-perspective, it's the other way around, where theory is driving evidence. The theory, they were already convicted, so they must be guilty, and then they're, they're trying to find evidence 
to fit that theory as opposed to going back and looking at the evidence and seeing where it leads us. I don't see the evidence in this case leading us to the West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.